Okay, so the first reading is taken from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 31, verses 1 to 13. In the eleventh year, in the third month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? Consider Assyria, a cedar of Lebanon, with fair branches and forest shade, and of great height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it, the deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place it was planted, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its boughs grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. All the birds of the air made their nests in its boughs. Under its branches, all the animals of the field gave birth to their young, and in its shade, all great nations lived. It was beautiful in its greatness, in the length of its branches, for its roots went down to abundant water. The cedars in the garden of God could not rival it, nor the fir trees equal its boughs. The plane trees were as nothing compared with its branches. No tree in the garden of God was like it in beauty. I made it beautiful with its massive branches, the envy of all the trees of Eden that were in the garden of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because it towered high and set its top amongst the clouds and its heart was proud of its height, I gave it into the land of the prince of the nations. He has dealt with it as its wickedness deserves. I have cast it out. Foreigners from the most terrible of the nations have cut it down and left it. On the mountains and in the valleys, its branches have fallen and its boughs lie broken in all the watercourses of the land. And all the peoples of the earth went away from its shade and left it. On its fallen trunk settle all the birds of the air and among its boughs lodge all the wild animals. The second reading is taken from the book of Psalm, chapter 104, verses 12, 16, and 17. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them, the birds build their nests, the stork has its home in the fir trees. The third reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The date is 587 BC, and the siege of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians has been underway for just about a year. The Egyptian pharaoh, Hophra, had come to the aid of the Jewish city, and the invading Babylonian army had temporarily withdrawn. 
the people of Jerusalem, seeing the Babylonian army pulling back, would surely have given thanks to God for the Pharaoh's intervention. But the prophet Ezekiel, who was, let's face it, something of a Jeremiah, was not so easily swayed by the to and fro of contemporary political events. He knows that the Pharaoh of Egypt is every bit as much an enemy to the people of God <coughs> as the king of the Babylonians. He knows that all empires that set themselves above the kingdom of God are ultimately under judgment and will ultimately fall. And in his condemnation of such empires, Ezekiel is as equal in his condemnation of Egypt as he is his condemnation of Babylon. But intriguingly, he also includes Jerusalem itself, which he says will have to face the consequences of its own political ambitions. For Ezekiel, the siege of Jerusalem and its ultimate destruction will be the outworking of the judgment on Jerusalem's political ambitions. So even as Pharaoh and the Egyptian army marched over the hill to scatter the besieging Babylonians, Ezekiel turns the full force of his prophetic rhetoric against the Pharaoh. Egypt, he says, is like a, a tall, impressive tree, graceful, a stately Lebanese cedar, towering over all the other trees, flourishing and nourished by the waters of the Nile. Like other empires before and since, Egypt saw itself as a benevolent force in the world, offering hospitality and protection to other lesser nations, which they would be wise to accept if they knew what was good for them. It had all started with Assyria a couple of centuries before. Assyria was the first of the great Middle Eastern empires, and it had sacked and conquered northern Israel 130 years earlier. Assyria however, had eventually collapsed in upon itself, and as Assyria grew weaker, so the Babylonian Empire had grown stronger, and, you know, a bit like the modern empires of Britain or Russia or North America, the Assyrian Empire, which would once have seemed such a kind of indispensable and unassailable force in the world and had thought itself to be so, well, it had fallen, or rather, as Ezekiel had it, it had been felled. Assyria had thought it could reach up to the heavens above with its towering trunk and its sturdy branches like the ancient mythological tree that stood at the centre of the world linking earth and heaven. But Assyria had been felled and cast into the world below, the world of death. And what the Assyrians had already learned the hard way a hundred and something years earlier, Ezekiel now proclaimed for both Egypt and Babylon. And if Israel trusts Egypt, says Ezekiel... It's trusting itself to a tree rotten at the roots and about to fall. Can you see how these stories of ancient nations are reflected in that little passage we had from the book of Ezekiel? Ezekiel can see that 
The temptation to seek security in the sheltering branches of Egypt is a dangerous one. It might stave off temporarily the assault of the Babylonians, but Babylon had felled Assyria and Babylon will eventually fell Egypt and then Babylon itself will fall. Don't trust yourself to any of these nations, is Ezekiel's message. Because Ezekiel's insight is that no empire can tower over the world forever. They all eventually fall. Because dominating ambition always sows the seeds of its own demise. By the time he's writing, Assyria has already gone, Babylon is on the rise, Egypt is on the rise, but he looks forward and he says Babylon will one day fall, just as Assyria did. Egypt will one day fall, just as Assyria did. Don't trust human empires. Leaders of empires who think that their mighty deeds of nationalistic conquest in the world can march them to the gates of heaven are always doomed to disappointment. All empires fall. And Ezekiel wants Israel of old to hear this and learn a powerful lesson, which is that the kingdom of God will never be established on the earth by the glorious political and military progression of the people of God. Ezekiel is warning Israel that if Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, sets her sights on becoming an empire sustained by might, well, they may win a few battles, but ultimately they'll lose the war. Ezekiel knows that the covenant between God and God's people, established between God and Abraham, is to be a covenant of blessing for all nations, never just for one nation. And if the people of God lose sight of this and start to build their own holy nation in opposition to the world, well, they're just making the same mistakes as Assyria and Egypt and Babylon because they're just placing themselves in opposition to God's intent of a covenant of blessing for all, not just for, for some. And yet, if we fast forward six centuries to the time of Jesus, we find Israel setting its sights firmly on the hope of political and military restoration. So, when Jesus is proclaimed as the Messiah of Israel and starts preaching the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven on the earth, he is continually heard and interpreted as calling for a military revolution against the latest of the tall trees to arise in the forest of empires, the empire of Rome. Like Assyria and Egypt and Babylon and Greece before it, Rome's empire offered the world a place for nations to find shelter and security. Come rest in my beneficent branches, said the propaganda of Rome. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was an offer to the nations built upon the military might of the legions and legitimated by the proclamations of divinity heaped upon the emperor. This was Rome's gift to the world, 
and the world would better accept it and pay its taxes if it knew what was good for it. This was the global situation at the time of Jesus. A new tree had arisen to tower over the world, joining earth to heaven by the might of its trunk and the strength of its branches. And it was in this context that first century Jewish messianic expectation had come to focus on the hope of a coming Messiah who would be a new King David, who would re-establish the political and military strength of the nation of Israel, restoring its borders to their ancient boundaries, overthrowing the Roman overlords, creating a geographically and politically secure land for the people to inhabit. And of course, this is not a dream that has gone away, is it? You only have to look at what's going on in Israel-Palestine at the moment to see that there are some in Israel who are intent on building that kingdom to those boundaries. This is the context into which Jesus spoke his deceptively simple parable of a mustard seed. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. And the first thing to notice here is that Jesus is not describing the kingdom of heaven as a cedar of Lebanon. He describes it as a, a mustard seed, which might one day become a tree, but a mustard seed's never going to become a cedar tree. Despite what many in Israel were hoping for, the kingdom Jesus proclaimed was not another empire, another cedar thrusting its way upwards in the forest, outgrowing and outcompeting other empires on its way to the top. This isn't some vision of future glories awaiting the long-oppressed people of God who will finally one day get the empire they've always longed for. Precisely the opposite, in fact. This is a parable which addresses an implicit question, which must surely have loomed large in the minds of Jesus' disciples. The question of how to understand the unimpressive and unexpectedly small nature of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is already present on the earth and which can already be experienced through his life and ministry. You see, the disciples have already heard John the Baptist proclaiming in the wilderness in chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. This refrain was quickly picked up by Jesus, whose first public words in chapter 4 were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. At the Beatitudes, Jesus had promised the kingdom of heaven to those who are poor in spirit and to those who are persecuted. He instructed the twelve disciples to go out into the world proclaiming the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And the question that Jesus addresses in this short parable of the mustard seed is how it could be that what has been happening in the ministry of Jesus and the disciples could possibly be 
the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. You can just hear people muttering. Wasn't the kingdom supposed to be a mighty display of God's defeat of evil and the removal of the nations afflicting Israel? I mean, sure, these miracles are nice, but where's the rest of the story? Where's the overthrow of Rome? Where's the restoration of the monarchy? Where's the re-establishment of the independent nation of God's people with geographically secure borders? The mustard seed story urges, warns even, that no one should be put off if the kingdom of heaven looks unimpressive. Because that would be to judge the kingdom of heaven as if it were just another earthly empire. The thing about mustard seeds is that they were famous for being really tiny. Proverbs about them, you know, you can imagine another one Jesus told, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. It was the proverbially tiny seed, but it would grow into a large plant with large leaves. And the point Jesus is making is that the large plant is already, in some way, present within the tiny seed. There's a technical term for this in theology, and it's realised eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of the end times, and realised eschatology says that the end times are present now. It's a way of thinking about time from God's perspective, rather than from a human perspective. Because from our point of view, time is linear. You know, one thing leads to another. The seed becomes a plant, and with the passing of time, maybe a tree. From heaven's perspective, the not yet, the full tree, is also now. The glorious end is already contained in the fragile now. The end of all things is encoded at its beginning. Now, it's a shame that a scientific understanding of DNA wasn't available to Jesus, because I have a suspicion it would have suited his purposes quite nicely here. I can just imagine him adding another little parable here. The kingdom of heaven is like a strand of DNA, so tiny only electron microscopes can see it, but it gives shape to all the glories of nature, from the eye to the brain, from the rose to the mighty oak. The not yet is also now. The kingdom coming is with you today. You might not see it yet, but it's there. Just as the earliest discovery of DNA was done using X-ray crystallography, where you couldn't see DNA itself, just its effects, so the kingdom is sometimes too small and insignificant even to see. And all you can do is begin to trace its effects and glimpse its power. The mustard tree is already there, fully contained in the tiny mustard seed. And the kingdom of heaven is like this. If you know how to look, you can trace its effects. The longed-for kingdom had already begun in the life and ministry of Jesus and his followers. It's there in, in the healings and the exorcisms, in restorations and acts of mercy. It's found in acts of inclusion and in parables of grace and forgiveness. All these are signs of the kingdom, and they speak in the here and now of the end result which is already contained within them. They speak of the truth that the kingdom of heaven is for the benefit of all peoples, 
that, like birds nesting in the branches of a mustard tree, so will all find their home and refuge within the kingdom of heaven. It is already clear from the tiny mustard seed that the final fulfilment of the covenant God established with Abraham, that his children will be a blessing to all nations, is there. But there is a very real danger to be avoided here, and we need to be alert to it. For much of the last 2,000 years, the parable of the mustard seed has been interpreted by Western Christianity as a legitimation of the glorious progress of the church in the world. The deals that the church has done down the centuries with institutionalised power, from Constantine onwards, have been understood as the growth of the kingdom of heaven from the tiny seed of the parochial ministry of Jesus to the mighty mustard tree of the church universal. The birds of the air taking nest in the branches of the tree have become the Gentiles and the pagan nations welcoming Christ as their saviour, joining themselves to his glorious kingdom. In short, this parable has become in Christianity a justification for colonialism, Christendom and missional expansionism. But I hope you can see that such an interpretation is a radical distortion of the character of the kingdom which Jesus proclaims. The kingdom of heaven is not another cedar in the forest of nations. It is not another empire, however holy or Roman. There is no mandate here for the Christian country or for the holy war. Precisely the opposite, in fact. To enter the kingdom of heaven is always to set aside power and status and wealth and money. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 19. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. To live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to live the values of the Beatitudes. It is to learn to see the grace and action of God in the present rather than to (laughs) long for a more powerful and more glorious future. The kingdom is with us, here and now, through acts of love and forgiveness and justice and welcome and inclusion. And it teaches us to take the ordinary things of our world and see within them the mysteries of heaven, 
so that the heavenly perspective informs and infuses the way that we live day by day. I bet Jesus' followers never looked at a mustard tree with birds in its branches in quite the same way again. Because Jesus has opened their eyes to the fact that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And I wonder how we can learn to see the kingdom of God in the ordinary things of our world. Can we learn to set aside for a moment our desires for success and strength and power and find the not yet in the here and now? Can we resist the lure of the cedar tree and discover the miracle of the mustard seed? Can we find eternity in each insignificant moment? Can we learn to associate the familiar things of our world with the mysteries of heaven in such a way that we will live differently from today onwards? In a moment, we're going to be focusing on bread and wine, ordinary things of this world, but which contain the eternity of Christ. We heard earlier that 50 years ago, some promises were made in this church. Just one morning, some people said some stuff. My invitation to you is to begin to write your own parable, choosing something from your world and finding in it the mysteries of heaven. There's a space on the back of your order of service for you to write your parable. If you get it done by the time we get to the offering, feel free to tear it off and stick it in the offertory plate and it'll get passed to me. Or give it to me later or email me. My plan is to come back to these at our anniversary Sunday in July when we come to the next of Jesus' parables of the kingdom in our Why This Church series, when we're going to be looking at the parable of the yeast. And I'd love us to hear from one another some parables of the kingdom of heaven. I had a thought of another one to sit alongside my DNA one. The kingdom of heaven is like a beautiful birthday cake, which can only bring its true joy once it has been broken into pieces. So what is the kingdom of heaven like for you? Great Christ of all love, in whose cross all power and authority finds its ultimate end, we come now to pray for those earthly powers which determine and dictate the lives of people. We lay before you those powers which present as our governing authorities. We pray for those who work in our government and the civil service and for all others at a national and local level who hold their delegated power on behalf of us all. We pray for those governments around our world which have put aside any notion of appropriate representation and whose actions are perpetrated from base motives. May they see through you and in us 
a way of being a human that respects the other, holds authority lightly but responsibly, and is ever alert to the temptation to selfish misuse of power. Grant those with power eyes to see and ears to hear and the courage to act with compassion and mercy. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. Great Christ of all love, in whose cross all power and authority finds its ultimate end, we lay before you those powers which present as military might. We pray for those in our armed services, for soldiers and generals, for peacekeepers and tactical forces, for law enforcers and legislators of law, and for all others whose power relies on the application of force. We pray also for those armies and militia forces around our world, which have put aside any notion of appropriate force and whose actions are perpetrated from base motives. May they see through you and in us a way of being human that respects the other, holds authority lightly but responsibly, and is ever alert to the temptation to selfish misuse of power. Grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, and the courage to act with compassion and mercy. Your kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven. Through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. Great Christ of all love, in whose cross all power and authority finds its ultimate end, we lay before you those powers which present as economic might. We pray for those in our banks and businesses, for those who have personal wealth and for those who handle great wealth on behalf of others. We pray also for those economic forces around our world which have put aside any notion of appropriate distribution and whose actions are perpetrated from base motives. May they see through you and in us a way of being human that respects the other, holds authority lightly but responsibly, and is ever alert to the temptation to selfish misuse of power. Grant them eyes to see, ears to hear, and the courage to act with compassion and mercy. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Through our lives and by our prayers, your kingdom come. Amen.